Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, what is the soul? That's S-O-U-L, by the way. This is part one of two on a historic Christian view of the soul. And Ken, this is a, an interesting topic. Uh, sometimes people might be puzzled just with that very word. So maybe that's a good place to start. How has historic Christianity described or defined the soul? Yeah, that is really a, a great place to begin. And let me give you a little background uh, biblically uh, on this. Um, I think it's fair to say that when the Bible addresses this question, that uh, by and large, it emphasizes uh, the unity of human beings, of being body and soul. Uh, and I'll I'll pick that up a little bit later. But I think it's fair to say that most Christians through the centuries, going back to St. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, forward uh, through various Protestant thinkers, that historic Christianity has said that uh, the soul, uh, and I'm going to give you a definition from Charles Taliaferro. He is a Christian uh, philosopher of religion. He says, uh, he defines the soul as, quote, an immaterial center of personal identity, an immaterial center of personal identity. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, in looking at this, this issue, uh, you know, we have various words, uh, body, there, there's no formal Hebrew word for body, but the term basar denotes bodily flesh. And of course, in the New Testament, it would be Greek rather than Hebrew. And so you'd have the word soma. I'm sure you've heard psychosomatic, uh, mind-body uh, reference. Then there's the word soul in Hebrew, nefesh. In the New Testament Greek, it's suke. And uh, we have the word spirit in Hebrew, the Hebrew Old Testament, ruach. Uh, in Greek, pneuma. So I take the position, and we'll spell this out uh, a lot more a little later in this program and carry it over into a second program. I take the position that soul and spirit are used biblically, Joe, interchangeably. So I would say that the Bible speaks of a, a basic body-soul dualism, that is that uh, we are a unified body and soul together. And I think that that is roughly what the Bible teaches. I think that's kind of the classical view. Now, I should also point out that we have talked about a body-soul dualism, uh, dualism meaning two, um, but you also have other views. Um, Thomas Aquinas the great uh, 13th century Catholic philosopher, he developed what he called hylomorphism. And that was kind of his uh, way of looking at the unity of the body and soul in, in terms of the way kind of Aristotle thought about, um, you know, uh, the activity of the soul. So that, that's very similar to uh, body-soul 
dualism, but also has its distinction. But I should also say, Joe, and, and I find this a, a, a little bit um, interesting. There are Christian uh, philosophers who believe that we don't have a soul, that we are just a body. It, You could call it a type of monism. You could call it a type of physicalism. So there are Christian philosophers today who say, uh, I believe in life after death. I believe in a bodily resurrection, but I don't believe uh, that we're a body and soul. We're an animated body. And uh, that position has taken by some Christians who are uh, orthodox in their views, but I still think that classically, uh, Taliaferro's definition, an immaterial center of personal identity, and again, the idea that the Bible emphasizes not a separateness of our soul and body, but a unity of the, of the two together. And in fact, Thomas Aquinas said this, that in the intermediate state, so we have the present world you and I are living in, we're a unity of body and soul. At death, our soul will, uh, and I'm basing this on 2 Corinthians 5, Philippians 1, that there will be a separation of our body and soul. Our body will go into the ground or be uh, uh, burned up, cremated. The, our soul will go into the presence of Christ, will be conscious. But Thomas said, in that intermediate state where we are awaiting the bodily resurrection, where we'll be reunited, re-enfleshed, if you will, but, but then with a new body, like unto Christ's body, uh, resurrection body, uh, Thomas said that we are not fully human without our body. And so our existence in a biblical context is that unity of, of soul and body together. So I, I think that Talia Farrow's definition is a pretty good one, uh, an immaterial center of personal identity. And there are a lot of other words uh, that are used in scripture. We've talked a bit about body and soul and spirit, but there's terms like heart and mind. I would say that we have an immaterial part of us. That's our soul, our mind, our consciousness. Uh, and then we have a physical part of our existence, and that's our our body. Hmm. Uh, a question along those lines, given that uh, Jesus uh, is the God-man, uh, did, did Jesus, or does Jesus, or I suppose you'd say, did he have a soul while he walked on the earth? Yeah, this is a, a very important question. Um, I, I think the way to think about this and the way to approach this is that Jesus was a fully, he had a full human nature. He was, his human nature was genuinely uh, one of a, of a man, of a human being. And therefore, uh, Jesus had all of the essential qualities of what it meant to be a human being. And so he had a human soul or a human spirit. He had a human body. He had uh, a human mind and a human will. Uh, and what's interesting, Joe, is that sometimes in church history, 
uh, people have engaged or even developed a heretical perspective, uh, I think by and large, you always want to be very careful about denying any essential element of humanity for the person of Christ. And uh, uh, so, you know, the, the incarnate son of God, uh, he had uh, uh, two wills. Uh, he was a real human being and had a human soul. Hmm. What is the connection between the image of God and the soul? That's a, that's a very important question because, you know, Scripture speaks to this issue. I think that there are probably only a half a dozen uh, direct references to what we would call in Latin the imago Dei, or the image of God. And yet, even though there are only a few references, both Old and New Testament, this really is very significant. That, that is, if you were to look at human beings and say, what is it that makes them unique? Or what is the defining characteristic? And here I like to bring it into our cultural context. I don't identify myself by the color of my skin or that I happen to be a male or uh, you know my class uh, setting in terms of am I middle class or upper class? I, I identify as a human being. And as a human being, I've been made in the image of God. And then, of course, I would extend that to I am a child of God and have been redeemed through the person of Jesus Christ. So, Joe, in many of our discussions about bioethics, like abortion, but also issues relating to um, at the end of life situations, euthanasia, active and passive euthanasia, I think it's critical to think of us as bearing the image of God. And in light of that, we have inherent dignity and moral worth. Uh, I think the Christian worldview by and large looks at human beings when they're conceived in the womb. Life begins at conception and human beings have a full human nature, uh, which means they have a mind, they have will, uh, they can make choices, but they're human beings in development. They're not developing into human beings. They have a human nature that is given by their creation, and they're growing, of course, in self-awareness. So when, when Christians argue typically against abortion and for a pro-life position, we would say that uh, the fetus in the womb is a fully human being, but it is undergoing development. And, and of course, that's true of even the baby outside of the womb. Uh, humans go through various development. I've read that, you know, high school kids, uh, they're still growing in terms of their brain and their mind. Uh, and of course, later in life, People experience uh, dementia sometimes, Alzheimer's, but they're still a human being, fully human nature, even whether they're conscious of that in the womb or later in life or not. And so this, even though the Imago Dei is only mentioned a few times in scripture, it's a very critical part. So let's look at a couple passages in, in light of this. Um, 
maybe the most important passage is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Uh, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, uh, or the sky, over the livestock, over all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Now, of course, what exactly is the Imago Dei? That is a debated question. I like to say that we have kind of three perspectives. Uh, one of them is called the resemblance view, and that is that we have faculties that resemble God. God is a moral being. We have the capacity to engage in a moral or immoral behavior and actions. Uh, God is a rational being. We have the capacity to engage in, in uh, reasoning. So this resemblance idea would be that we have faculties or qualities that are like unto God. They're, they are mortal, they're finite, but they reflect what we see in immortality and uh, infinitude with, uh, in terms of, uh, of God. Now, sometimes that view, Joe, is called a substance view. And so, again, we have this substance or faculty that makes us like or resemble God. A second view, and again, Christians have debated differing view. I think the second view is very popular today, and there's a lot to, to say about it. It's called the relational view. I What I really like about this is it's very Trinitarian in the sense that maybe we are most like God, in our capacity to relate to God, to relate to each other, and uh, that this is a distinguishing feature that sets us apart from uh, the machines, it separates us from the animals, to have these interpersonal relationships. Uh, I think that that's a, a very engaging and critical idea. A third perspective that lots of people gravitate toward, Joe, is called the representative view, or sometimes called the functional view, and that is that God made us in his image in that we can be his vice regents. We can take dominion over nature. We can represent God, and I think you see that to some degree uh, in verse 28, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, I like to tie them all together because I think to, to one degree or another, they all represent the Imago Dei or the image of God. But the way I'd like to do that is I would say because we resemble God, we can then relate in a similar way that God relates. Because we resemble God, we can then represent God. So I think all of them are true, but it could be that that resemblance or substance view is kind of the foundation. Ooh, very interesting. Now, the, the interaction, of course, would be critical that uh, part of our soulishness 
uh, our capacity to think, our capacity to make moral choices, to be a spiritual being would involve uh, both the, the, the invisible side as well as the physical side of our being. Hmm. Uh, Ken, since you mentioned the word soulishness there, uh, people who are familiar with reasons to believe know that Hugh Ross often talks about how God created uh, animals with a, a soulish quality about them. Uh, yet you've been talking about the image of God at some length here. So I wonder if you might uh, identify this as a distinguishing factor. Only humans are made in the image of God. Soulishness is, is a different thing. Humans have souls, but animals are soul-ish. So I wonder if you might uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a challenging question, for, I think, for a couple reasons. One, the Bible doesn't have a lot to tell us about this. Uh, and the other issue is, um, you know, we, we when we talk about the soul of an animal or the soulishness of an animal, as opposed to uh, the soul of a human being that's made in the image of God, we're talking about things like consciousness and self-awareness and identity. And in philosophy and theology, those are challenging uh, ideas. I think it is clear that the Bible teaches that only human beings bear the image of God. And, and in fact, let me read Genesis 2-7, which I consider a critical passage. Uh, it says, then the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim here, formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Um, that's a very powerful uh, passage. We are made from the dust of the ground, but also given the breath of life. And that distinguishes us as a living being. It, it seems to involve both the, the immaterial uh, soul element, but it also involves the dust of the ground. Or as Dave Rogstad, uh, our old colleague, you know, we're we're made of, uh, uh, you know, stardust uh, as well. So there is that that real physical side to us. Uh, I also think there may be something here in Genesis 2-7 that we move from the inanimate, the dust of the ground, to the animate, to, to being a living being. Uh, and it seems to be a direct creation. Evolution, and there are Christians who, there are some Christians who affirm evolutionary creation or a type of theistic evolution, they believe that we move from kind of uh, an inanimate uh, uh, and then and then later to uh, a animate. But I'm not sure that that passage allows for that. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, um, with regard to animals, only human beings uh, bear the image of God. It's not we're not told that the angels have it. We we are not told that that animals have it. Uh, moreover, um, it seems human beings are obsessional, uh, 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 exceptional creatures. Uh, you know, we have the capacity for symbolic speech. We're religious creatures. We're philosophical creatures. So 
what kind of soul or soulishness do animals have? They appear to have a, 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 an authentic consciousness. Uh, certain animals seem to be high and above others. I mean, you know, what, what does a, a slug or a worm have as compared to a dolphin or an elephant? Uh, some of these creatures are exceptionally high functioning creatures. But I would prefer to say that they have a type of consciousness or soulishness rather than saying they have um, a, a soul the way human beings do. That's a good, good clarification. Uh, Ken, you mentioned a couple of words earlier that uh, are often spoken together. So let me put those words together and have you uh, discuss this biblical anthropology here are the words body, mind, heart, soul, and spirit. People may be recalling <clears throat> Jesus when he talks about uh, keeping the greatest commandment, loving uh, your God with all your heart, soul, mind. And I think he says strength there, if I'm not mistaken. But the words I have here are body, mind, heart, soul, and spirit. How do we differentiate between those words? Yeah, one of the things that we'll get into a little later is, of course, where does the soul come from and what are we, uh, what are our constituent parts of our being? There are people who adopt a trichotomy. I, I, I think that's kind of an outlier position. Uh, the trichotomist position, tri meaning three, they would distinguish between body, soul, and spirit. So spirit and soul would be distinguished. The more classical view of Christianity is what we call dichotomy. And that means that we're a, a body and soul. Um, and, you know, therefore, that's kind of the, the two constituent parts. Let me, let me read a passage here from uh, evangelical theologian Wayne Grudem. Uh, one of the things I really appreciate about Gruden is that he is very biblical in his orientation. He's always wanting to focus on what does the Bible give us. And um, it's not that there aren't other theological topics that are important, like what, what, has, what has Christianity taught historically or philosophically. But Grudem is a biblical theologian, and I, I like that. He, he has a uh, a statement here that I think is very important in his book, Systematic Theology. He says, before asking whether scripture views soul and spirit as distinct parts of man, we must at the outset make it clear that the emphasis of scripture is on the overall unity of man as created by God. So I, I think that that's very important. Now, in light of that, and that I accept the idea that we're a unity of body and soul. What are we to do when scripture passages talk about these other terms? Love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Well, um, I think that that's in some ways it undercuts a trichotomous position. Because if you accept trichotomy, body, soul, and spirit, well, well, why not heart? Why not add to it strength? Sometimes it's five or six different things. I think it's better to see this. Now, now the New Testament, of course, was written in Greek. But remember, Jesus spoke Aramaic. He was familiar with Hebrew. 
I think what we get via the Greek New Testament here is a Hebrew form of parallelism. Love God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. I don't think Jesus is dividing us into parts there. I think what he's getting at is the very root of your being. Love God with everything that you are. And uh, heart is uh, cardia. You know, we, we have heart doctors, uh, cardiologists. Um, I think what we're being told there is that we are to be sold out to God in loving him with our entire being. I don't think, uh, I don't think dividing in the parts is a very coherent or exegetically sound way of thinking. Now, there are Christians who disagree with me. Uh, I mentioned our former colleague uh, on the podcast, Dave Rogstedt. Dave leaned toward a, a trichotomist view. I, I think that one of the people that has influenced many people in that direction is uh, uh, Watchman Nee, who is a Chinese uh, author. But I think the dichotomous position is much preferable. And, and a little later in our discussion, we'll get to that. All right. Good stuff. Uh, how about mind-body dualism? I know that's a big topic, but uh, yeah. how should we look at that? What, what is it? What does that mean? Now, here, of course, we're, we're bringing it together because we're we're, you know, we've developed uh, our view of body and soul. We've given it a definition. We've talked about the biblical basis of being made in the image of God and that we're a unity of, of body and soul. But now we're bringing in a philosophical element of this. Um, and mind-body dualism is a philosophical view. And it says that mind and body, so again, uh, Mind would be our consciousness, our thought life. Our body would be the material aspect of us. So it's a philosophical view that mind and body are fundamentally distinct kinds of substances or natures. So as a human being, I'm a unity of body and soul. I'm a unity of mind and body. And that soulishness or the, the consciousness part of me, the non-physical part of me, that's a nature. But then it's in unity with another nature or substance called uh, the body, the physical component. I, I think that that has largely been the historic Christian perspective. Now, I want to qualify that. There are different types of mind-body dualism. Anybody who's taken an introductory philosophy course, for example, would be familiar with the mind-body view of somebody like uh, the, uh, the French philosopher René Descartes. I'm not saying the Bible teaches that kind of view, but it seems that scripture validates a basic mind-body dualism, so that there is a, a unified part of us. Now, Again, Thomas Aquinas with his hylomorphism is going to see a tighter union uh, in that kind of thing. And as I mentioned before, uh, even though I don't think this is correct, but uh, I'll tell you, there's some very thoughtful uh, Christian philosophers who say we're just a body. 
Hmm. Um, that to me is hard to to defend exegetically. But uh, what's interesting here, Joe, is that within Christianity, there are clear times where there are different differing points of view. And um, those people who believe that we are an animated body, they still believe in life after death. They still believe in resurrection, but they don't buy or accept the the capacity to distinguish our soulishness from our bodily. In the case of those you just mentioned who say we're composed of just a body, is that different? And if so, how? from a skeptic, let's say a naturalist, who'd say we are bodies that have brains. Uh, so how, how does how does that work out? How do, you, how do they differentiate? I think part of the reaction that some people have to body-soul dualism, Joe, is some kind of, sometimes people think that you have kind of a smuggled-in Platonism going on. Hmm. Uh, Plato, the great uh, Athens philosopher who studied under Socrates and was later the teacher of Aristotle, um, uh, had the first European university called the Academy. Uh, Plato believed that there were uh, eternal souls and that the real you was your soul and the body was just kind of secondary and so we lived in a, a world where the soul would then ultimately go into the world of forms. I think some people have thought that maybe, maybe this idea of mind-body dualism is kind of Platonism creeping into Christianity. Now, um, I, I'd say a couple of things to that. I would say um, most of the people that I think hold of a very reflective, thoughtful view of body-soul dualism uh, are not uh, Platonists in a, in a negative sense. And uh, I, but yet I also think that inevitably Christians are going to use the thought patterns of their time uh, to present their case. I mean, uh, Augustine to some degree took Platonism or Neoplatonism as a way of kind of presenting uh, certain Christian ideas. Thomas Aquinas did it with Aristotle. Hugh Ross does it with Big Bang cosmology. So you take the thought patterns of the day and show that Christianity is compatible with what seems to be what is what is true. Uh, so, it, you know, kind of getting back to your question then, um, I, I think that, I think part of this has to do with the issue of how we think through these issues, that there is a mind-body dualism, there is a, a unity to it, um, and that we want to be careful about, uh, you know, other non-Christian perspectives. I mean, Joe, there are even views, um, I think you see this in elements of Platonism, I think you see it even in the LDS church, the Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, where you have eternal spirits, uh, and those people are are alive as eternal spiritual beings and then become incarnated. Uh, I don't think the Bible teaches that we are eternal spirits. I believe that we are created by God. I think we see in Genesis 2 where 
where God created Adam and uh, he became a living being, dust of the ground, breath of life. So uh, some of these areas get a little uh, hazy because there are other philosophical or worldview systems that overlap and interact with it. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, Ken, maybe a final question for this podcast. There's a lot more to come in the second podcast. And this question will involve some discussion as well. But it's a fascinating one, especially, let's say there's a, a couple out there starting a family and they have a baby and they start to think about souls. Like, okay, I'm sure my baby has a soul, but where did it come from? God, yes, but how did God do it? <laughs> so yeah, big question there, Ken. Yeah, I think that this is a very intriguing question, and I I think we're getting down to what is what is a human being? What makes up a human being? What are the very foundations for our humanity? And there largely have been two answers to that question. One of them is called creationism. The other is called traducianism. And I'll introduce these ideas in this podcast, and we'll save some further discussion and debate uh, uh, in our in our second podcast. But the creationist position is that that God creates each individual soul. So you have the idea that uh, you know with with Adam, the dust of the ground, the breath of life, that breath of life included the soulishness of of the first human being. And the creationist position would then be that for each and every human being that uh, is conceived and comes into existence, then God creates a soul for that being. Uh, you know, some people would refer, for example, to Psalm 139, that God places us in the womb of our mother, uh, kind of plants us there. So some would argue that uh, the Bible teaches a, a type of creationism, that God creates a fresh soul for every every uh, person that is conceived. Now, you can already see, I think, that there are some challenges to that idea. Uh, God would have to create a fresh soul every time, rather than uh, God ceasing from his creation. Now, there's a second view that is less well known. It's called traducianism. And uh, traducianism would say that just as human beings have the cat capacity to conceive the physical body of their children, that the soul, the soulish element or the, the, the soulish component of a human being also comes from the soul of the parents. So, you know, uh, you look at your children, they may have uh, the eye color of the dad, they may have, uh, you know, the the looks of uh, the, the hairstyle of from the mother. Well, the tradition position says that in God bringing forth Adam and Eve, or in Adam, and then later Eve, that humans have the capacity to reproduce themselves, and that reproduction is not limited merely to the body. It is also 
uh, relates to the soul. Now, again, you can start to immediately see some challenge. Well, what would it be like for a soul to give birth to another soul? And there are strengths and there are weaknesses in both of these viewpoints. And there have been Christian scholars on both sides of the, the viewpoint. I think it's probably fair to say that probably the creationist view has been the dominant view. Uh, but here's the challenge. They both have strengths and weaknesses. And neither one of them is clear cut. And so there has been... Uh, maybe extended speculation because we'd like to have more information sometimes you know yeah. we we'd like to know a, a lot more about it but what i think is fascinating here joe is a, a couple things from a tradition point of view i mean we have uh, we know that there are certain physical things that run in families um you know you you could have a an illness that would be passed on uh, genetically or biologically. You might have uh, uh, mental health challenges that come and seem to run in families. Uh, what is the source of that? Um, and how are we both like and unlike our parents? We, we are distinct human beings, but our parents, I mean, 23 chromosomes from mom, 23 from dad. Uh, I, The older I get, Joe, the, the more I emphasize that I'm not explainable apart from my parents, mm -hmm. not just physically and genetically and biologically, but also in the way that they uh, uh, nurtured me, the way they, uh, you know, developed my personhood. So uh, this, these questions, I think, are, are very engaging. And, you know, in the next time in our program, I'd like to kind of look at the, those two issues. I'd like to look at, are we body, soul, and spirit, or body and soul? Uh, so trichotomy and dichotomy. And I'd like to explore some of the biblical evidence, both for a creationist view of the soul and a tradition view of the soul. And I, I hope that this uh, will engage our listeners. I hope they'll say, hey, I'd like to I'd like to think more about these issues. I'm sure they will. Great stuff. Thank you for your thoughts on that, Ken. So be sure to listen to the next podcast and share the link with uh, your friends and uh, let them know about these topics. And I'm sure they'll benefit from them as well. Uh, Ken, I know you're going to talk about this uh, some more, but anything, can you recommend anything uh, right now that we might be reading? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I think in many respects, um, my book, Seven Truths That Changed the World, has an extended discussion of uh, the issue of the image of God and of the body and soul that I think would be a, a, a good place to be reading. Um, and again, what I think is very helpful here is that this issue isn't just speculative issues about how many parts are we or where did the soul come from, but it also then relates to these debating, these bioethical issues of our time, abortion, euthanasia, war, um, 
all of these kinds of things come out of a biblical anthropology. In fact, Joe, I would even say this. I think the worldview that best explains human beings is probably the one that's true. And, you know, one thing you want to factor into that is what about original sin? What about the fallenness of humanity? So we'll talk about some of those. Seven Truths That Changed the World has two chapters on uh, human beings that have dignity and value because they're made in the image of God. All right. Great. Thank you for that recommendation. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Let us know your comments and questions. Reach out to Ken via X. That's at RTB underscore case samples. And we'll be glad to read your comment or question here. Get clear thinking sent to your device by subscribing to the Reasons to Believe podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Can Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.